So hello and welcome. I am Dr. Vilain from Paris, France. So please excuse my accent. And on behalf of CME Outfitters, I would like to welcome you and thank you for joining us today's CMEO briefcase titled How to Treat Aria in Emergency Settings, Timely Communication with Multidisciplinary Colleagues. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Lilly. So uh, I'm Nicolas Villain, I'm MD-PhD, I'm an associate professor of neurology at Sorbonne University in Paris, and I'm also an attending neurologist in the Institute of Memory and Alzheimer's Disease within the Department of Neurology in the Pitié Salpêtrière Hospital in Paris. And I am delighted to be joined today by my distinguished colleague, Dr. Karen Grunberg. Please introduce yourself. Thank you so much, Dr. Villain. I am really excited to be part of this webinar with you today. I am uniquely double board certified in emergency medicine and neurocritical care. And I've dedicated my emergency career to neurologic emergencies that come through the department. Uh, I specialize in stroke, but I do everything from dizzy to seizures, to headaches, to post-op complications. It's really become my passion. I am published, I am a national speaker, I have different professorships, and I'm excited to bring attention to this topic today. Thank you very much, very impressive introduction. And uh, I'm glad that uh, we can discuss together today about this topic. And um, so we will be going over the management of ARIA um, in patients receiving anti-amyloid therapies, ATTs, according to uh, best guidance, including communication with ATT, treating physician and radiologist. So what are ATTs, amyloid targeting therapies? Um, ATTs are uh, immunotherapies, antibodies, uh, passive immunotherapies, antibodies that are delivered IV. Um, we had several failures regarding these drugs in the last decade, but recently we had positive phase three trials with two drugs, Lecanemab and donanemab. ARIA stands for amyloid-related imaging abnormality. There are two subtypes of ARIA. And here now, Dr. Greenberg, can you now tell us about this case and start the discussion to illustrate how uh, ARIA will be important for the ED? Absolutely, that would be my pleasure. Uh, what we're gonna do is we're gonna kind of do a real life emergency stroke alert presentation. I think one of the best ways to tie everything together is to make it relevant with a patient case. We have a 65-year-old female who presents 30 minutes after acute onset of aphasia and a left gaze preference. Her blood pressure is 163 over 84 and her glucose is 170. A CT of her head and a CT angiography shows a left temporal hypodensity and a left middle cerebral artery distal M3 occlusion. Her platelets are normal at 256 and her INR is normal at 1.0. Her past medical history, she's in the early stages of cognitive decline and she is homozygous for the APOE4 allele. And when we look at her medication, she's on lecanemab infusions every two weeks for her cognitive decline. Her last infusion was four days prior, but she's not on any antiplatelets or anticoagulants. And prior imaging 
She had an MRI of her brain a little less than three months ago. And it shows mild small vessel disease with no microhemorrhages, edema, or aria. We just talked about the aria-e edema and the aria-h hemorrhage, but her MRI from less than three months ago looks pretty good. Dr. Villain, from the perspective of your neurology expertise, what would you look to prioritize for the evaluation of this patient? So... As you mentioned, we are here facing a sudden neurological deficit. We have uh, acute onset aphasia and left cave preference. So our uh, main diagnosis in mind is, of course, an acute stroke, ischemic or hemorrhagic stroke, also seizure, and atypical migraine would be very low in our list, but could be also in mind. So. In this case, of course, it depends on your facility, but you would ask for um, an emergency um, um, brain imaging. And here we have a CT that uh, tells you, okay, you have a left temporal hypodensity and the left middle cerebral artery distal M3 occlusion. So it looks like we have an ischemic stroke, but here we have something strange for a stroke, the CT, is done early, less than two hours before the onset of symptoms, and we already have a left temporal hypodensity, which is unusual. Hypodensity usually appears after an, an ischemic stroke uh, about 24 hours um, after the onset of symptoms. So here we have an early hypodensity, so it's unusual. And the patient is under lecanemab, and we have this risk of aria, and one of the aria is aria-e, so edema could also be a differential here. So I would be very careful in this case because we have two important differential in mind, aria, which could be responsible for a partial seizure uh, and responsible for the symptoms, as well as an ischemic stroke. So I would definitely, if I can, ask for an emergency MRI to be sure whether it's an ischemic stroke. And I think that from an emergency perspective, and I want to be honest with our audience members today, that this is new for emergency medicine and why we're doing the webinar today and why you're attending. Huge stroke is obviously the high priority here. What we want to make the audience aware of today is we take care of dementia patients in the emergency department all the time. When you leave this webinar today and you ask if patients are on drugs that might be a contraindication like Pradaxa, Eliquis, Xarelto, or Coumadin, you now need to ask these patients what medicines are they taking for their Alzheimer's disease because of the risk of bleeding and to now widen your differential as you just said, Dr. Villain, this might not just be an acute ischemic stroke in front of me. This might be an aria. And having attended this webinar today, you'll now know what aria is and have it on your differential. So I think that's a good lead in um, for our audience response question. Thank you for participating. And I'll turn it back over to Dr. Greenberg to continue our patient case discussion. Continuing with the patient case, the patient was deemed a candidate to receive Alteplase, 
and she did receive it. And I do think that's reasonable. Her blood pressure was in parameters. There was no obvious contraindication according to current American Heart and American Stroke guidelines. 50 minutes after the start of the infusion, we get the dreaded emergency physician call. Dr. Greenberg, we need you in the room. The systolic blood pressure rose from 160 to 250. And this is every emergency medicine physician's nightmare. We stopped the infusion. Repeat CT showed extensive multifocal intraparenchymal hemorrhages. And it's important to note that there was no systemic bleeding, that all of the bleeding happened in the brain itself. Reversal agents were given, TXA and cryoprecipitates. Unfortunately, the patient had persistent global aphasia she continued to decompensate. She became agitated. She had non-convulsive seizures. She required intubation. The family ultimately made the decision to make her comfort care and she did pass away. And what you're looking at on the screen now is images A and B are showing you an MRI. Blood is white on CAT scan, but it's dark, it's black on MRI. So all of those black spots that you're seeing is actually hemorrhage on this MRI. What's interesting is her stroke was supposed to be localized to the right thalamus, but what you're seeing is diffuse blood on this MRI. And what we're learning is that's because the blood vessels are weakened. You're pulling amyloid from the vessels from the brain. So it's weakening the brain structures. C is actually showing you the autopsy and the fixed brain, and you can see multifocal hemorrhages there as well. D&E is getting into some of the nitty gritty histology, which we don't have to go into. This case is highlighting stroke is always evolving and changing. It's why I'm very passionate about doing it in emergency medicine. And what we're bringing to the table today is another entity that we need to be aware of when it comes to patients presenting with neurologic complaints. Dr. Villain, what information do we currently have regarding the potential effects of fibrinolytic and or anticoagulant use in patients who have been taking amyloid targeting therapies like aducanumab, lecanumab, and soon to becoming donatumab? Well, to be honest, at the moment, we don't have much information since these drugs are now only getting in clinical practice in the US. So we only have the experience of the phase three trials. And as you know, in phase three trial, it's not real life. The patient with the most, with the most severe comorbidities are always excluded. So we have data, but we only have partial data and that's, why I disclosed earlier that data will keep updating with time, with practice, with additional information being gathered on these drugs. So the only data we have are from lecanemab and donanemab trial. And uh, the most detailed data we have at the moment are from the lecanemab trial. And in the lecanemab trial, they seem to have an increased risk of uh, severe RIAH under uh, anticoagulant 
it did, anticoagulant did not increase the risk of IAE, but the risk of IAH. So we have, we have this information. It's not a lot of individuals. Only 10% of individuals in lecanemab were under anticoagulant. So about 180 individuals have been receiving lecanemab and anticoagulant. So it's a small sample, um, including the open label extension. But that's what we have at the moment. Regarding latics, we uh, only have this single case report. So we don't have any other information. That's the only thing we know. So now that's why I'm saying we are going to discuss and give you some advice. But we have a low level of uh, evidence to, to make this, this, this information. But all this information, even if it's a low level of evidence, go into the same direction, it seems to have a highest risk of hemorrhage with these drugs. Um, whether it's these drugs alone or these drugs during IRH is unknown. Of course, it's more likely IRH due to these drugs than these drugs uh, without IRH, but we cannot be sure. So we really want to give, to focus on, cautious, on caution here if you have a patient under these drugs, they have a, risk, a higher risk of IIH, and they have a higher risk of severe IIH, severe hemorrhage, if you give them concomitant uh, anticoagulant and even more lytics. I think my takeaways as an emergency meta physician right now, there's a couple things. Number one, we need to start asking patients if they're on these drugs, because it's not on most emergency physicians' radars. Number two, if you find out that they're on one of these drugs, take a step back and be sure that we're encompassing a multidisciplinary approach. Neurology, for sure. Maybe these patients would be best served to look for a large vessel occlusion first and go straight to intervention rather than administer lytics. If we come to the decision that they're not a candidate for intervention and lytics are the only option, maybe we need to quote those patients a higher risk of bleeding than the standard 6% that we're quoting right now. I don't know. We'll have to see where that goes. And most emergency departments in the United States are not going to have access to MRI. Maybe this is an opportunity for us to push why MRI is important in emergency settings. And I think that those are the big takeaways. Emergency medicine, we're already afraid, not, not afraid. We have reservations about giving IV lytics because it's the only medication that we give in the emergency department that can cause catastrophic bleeding in your brain. There's no other medication that we can sense if we give it to you that you can have this catastrophic outcome. And now we're bringing something else to the table that just makes providers need to stand up and pay attention. Absolutely. So now let's take a moment to revisit our audience response. The correct answer is A, yes, the patient may be a candidate, but fibrinolytic therapy is not preferred. So why did we conclude that? As you've seen, this patient had ATT. She had a stroke mimic. She was given TPA 
and she had diffuse bleeding. So there is this item risk. We've just discussed that. So of course, as Dr. Greenberg said, if you have a LVO, a large vessel occlusion, and please prefer uh, intravascular uh, intervention. But there is something I, I want to add now is, so let's imagine a situation where you're in a facility and you have an MRI. Please choose MRI as much as possible. But as Dr. Greenberg said, uh, you will not always be able to do that. So if you have an MRI, there is no sign of MRH, no sign of area. Well, your patient may still be at risk, at higher risk of brain bleeding because of TPA, but you have an extra examination that allows you to better examine the risk-benefit ratio of TPA in your situation. So that's a clear added value in the shared decision-making and the shared multidisciplinary discussion you will have with your colleagues, with your patient's family. If you don't have this information, then of course the discussion will always take place, but uh, you will have an unknown risk of MRH. So at the moment, the um, appropriate use recommendation uh, from a US specialist recommend not to use this lytics. So please discuss that with the patient, his family, and your colleagues. And uh, I would like to add something, you know, since we are in a moving field, at the moment, there is no guideline about that. So what I will tell you is not uh, something that is uh, um, in any recommendation, but we know that the risk of ARIA under these drugs it decreases with time. And after 12 months under the drug, the risk of ARIA becomes almost negligible. If you don't have any more ARIA risk, then you may have also a decrease in your MRH risk. So if you have a patient who is in this situation, the exact same case, but has ATT for two or three years, that will not happen now because the drug has just been approved. But in two or three years, you have a patient who has been under this treatment for the last two or three years. The risk of uh, an ARIA as a differential, the risk of hemorrhage may be lower because your risk of ARIA drops with time. So I know it sounds a bit complicating. Cautious is still a takeaway message. But in your discussion, in your multidisciplinary discussion with your colleagues, patient's family and patient, please mention that, that the risk of hemorrhage may diminish after 12 months under these drugs. Dr. Grigner, I'm unsure if you want to add something to this. And the only other thing that I want to add is that all of this care is individualized to the patient in front of you. So if you have a patient with a stroke score of one or two, for decreased sensation to one side of their body, we're probably not gonna recommend that you get a lytic. But if your stroke scale is 20, because you're hemiplegic and you're completely dysarthric and aphasic, we're probably gonna say, hey, this drug probably has an increased risk of bleeding, but you're severely disabled already. So in that case, the benefit might outweigh the risk. And it's just going to be really important to individualize to the situation in front of you 
and use that multidisciplinary approach between emergency neurology, neurosurgery, and our radiology friends as well. Absolutely. That's really something that I find very interesting about these new drugs. We are maybe getting to something that will help patients and also challenges us as physicians to make the best decisions. Uh, it will be more complicated. I can't agree more. But with time, with habits, we'll know how to handle this situation. And this begins now. So now let's continue and let's answer this question as well. And we will discuss the correct answer later. Thank you for answering. I will turn it back over to Dr. Greenberg to discuss the next slides. Great, thank you so much. Talking from the emergency perspective, there are definitely gonna be resources needed for your medical center to manage these serious or severe ARIA events now that you know what they are. And most importantly, after you leave this webinar today, we hope that you're gonna have some type of better idea of what these Alzheimer's drugs entail, what the risks are, so that you can develop some resources and maybe some protocols for patients who come in with suspected or known ARIA. So let's talk more here, considerations for management of serious or severe ARIA. You have it on your radar now. What happens if a patient actually presents with it? We talked about maybe putting together a protocol now that you've attended this webinar and it's on your radar. Know what your resources are. You're going to need to have neurology. You're going to need to have EEG. You're going to need to have a dedicated neurology unit or maybe even an ICU setting. The treatment that we're gonna do in the emergency department, if it's part of your differential, is high dose steroids. Okay, so glucocorticoid therapy. An example would be giving a gram of solumedrol. If you take care of an acute exacerbation of MS, multiple sclerosis, you're probably used to giving a gram of solumedrol in the emergency department. That would be your drug of choice in this patient population as well. And then we would look for our colleagues to continue a five-day course, whether that was IV or PO, depending on their hospital course. Thank you, Dr. Greenberg, for this very insightful management of ARIA. And now let's take a moment to revisit our audience response question from earlier. The correct answer was C, early initiation of high-dose glucocorticoids. So it's also important to consider, I have had some personal experience here with severe ARIA-E, and uh, since you will give uh, high-dose glucocorticoids to a patient with Alzheimer's disease, don't forget that they often had comorbidities, and of course you have to balance the risk-benefit uh, of it, considering, for example, aspiration pneumonia that may also occur uh, within the seizure. And since ARIA-E often uh, uh, present as a seizure, don't forget that. That may worsen the following sepsis and everything. And don't forget that very high dose steroids uh, can also decompensate uh, chronic heart failure. So beware of these two dimensions when you will give that to the patient. Of course, that will help uh, brain edema or his brain edema, but uh, this kind of side effects have also to be balanced. I'm not sure if you want to add something here, Dr. Greenberg. Um, the only other thing that I would add 
is uh, most of our patients in the United States that we're going to see in the emergency department have a history of diabetes as well. So you do want to watch out for the high dose glucocorticoids. And I think that just reemphasizes our theme of what we've been talking about today of risk versus benefits and looking at the whole picture for each patient. Absolutely. So from a neurologic emergency medicine perspective, what are some of the takeaways? It's really important to understand that these drugs are new. So there are no official clinical guidelines yet for the emergency department setting when you're talking about ATT use and the possibility of ARIA. You want to consider MRI as first-line imaging if possible. And again, we've acknowledged the fact that in the United States, MRI is not readily available and that we're going to potentially use this as an opportunity to maybe make it more accessible for us specific to certain patient populations. For stroke, consider discussing early with neurology and neurosurgery if that patient is an intervention candidate rather than a lytic candidate. And to take that one step further, I think that Dr. Villain and I were practicing what we preach with this multidisciplinary approach, and we've been collaborating before this webinar that the next time that you take care of a patient who's having a heart attack and needs heparin, but they're on lecanemab, you need to do a head CT, right? We never, I can't tell you the last time that I did a head CT for my acute STEMI patient in the emergency department. The Team Breach approach, I think that we've touched on for you guys. This is just a really nice graphic of the different people that we've involved. And I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Villain at this point to conclude our program today and address some goals to take into your practice. Well, it was really, really an excellent program today. And I really enjoyed having this discussion before and during this training. I hope you guys learned a lot of things. So now let's summarize our discussion with our SMART goals, specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and timely. That is what I hope that you will take from this presentation to apply to your practice, find or participate in developing an institutional protocol for emergency management of serious or severe ARIA. When patients present to emergency care settings with ARIA, seek a multidisciplinary approach, including radiology, neurology, and neurosurgery for management. And for patients with ARIA, depending upon severity and characteristics, consider admission to the hospital, have a low threshold for that, or critical care unit, seizure management, initiation of high-dose corticoids as part of the management. So today's CMEO briefcase is part of the three-part series of case-based activities that can be found on the Alzheimer's Disease Hub. I hope you'll check out the other two activities in the series. The Alzheimer's Disease Hub has these activities and many more than AED and more. The CMEO CME Outfitters Alzheimer's Disease Hub has also a number of excellent resources to share with your patients. Thank you again, Dr. Greenberg. It was really, really a great training. Um, and thank you to our audience for joining us.